Black Doctors Podcast. Welcome back to Black Doctors Podcast. I am Steven, your host. So excited to have a recurring guest on the show, expert in so many things, um, medical consultant for some pretty big name magazines. You'll see him on TV. You'll see him on the news. You see him in, in YouTube. You'll see him in Stomp the Yard. Dr. Italo Brown, man, welcome back to the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Steven, man. This is always a, a warm space and I feel like I'm home. Man, I changed the format of the show a little bit in the last like year or so because I wanted to be able to address current events and not just have like pre-recorded interviews. I can't keep up with the current events. <laughs> it's almost impossible, man. You'd have to have no life and stick to social media. Yeah. I, and I do want to shout out because I saw recently, was it your chapter, your fraternity yes, centennial? Yes, sir. Uh, I saw. At Morehouse College, the chapter of Alpha Phi Alpha, we celebrated our 100 year. Alpha Rho has been a a house of uh, several leaders and, and some of our names like Maynard Jackson stand among those as a true uh, generational change agents. So uh, it was wonderful for us to commune and celebrate some something that you don't get to say often within terms of black organizations is that they've been standing thriving and well-funded for a hundred years. Yeah, that was, you know, I was watching your Instagram stories. I'm not Greek, but the love, the respect, the community that was displayed. And was I appreciate incredible. that. We, you know, it's black history month. We're following up a conversation I had with Dr. Adam Milam. He's very heavily invested and involved in diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts and health disparities research. We specifically were talking about DEI tourism, that notion that there are some folks jumping on the bandwagon of this space, this uh, field of research, and kind of segueing that for their own personal gains into promotion. We discussed kind of some definitions of DEI and healthcare disparities, and obviously it's an extremely broad topic yeah. to cover. On the heels of that conversation, though, you know, the world has already been turned upside down. You know, we see people and kids dying left and right on social media. We've got Alabama figuring out new ways Man. to execute people. We got them banning in vitro right. fertilization. And then dermatologists, man, the dermatologists started acting up. And there was some proposals in their governing body, American Academy of Dermatology, to, quote, sunset DEI initiatives. So we are here. We're, we're back. You know, it's still, you know, it's all that's happening in Black History Month. I thought that was and very we're going to talk about... <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, they're waiting for that moment. We're going to talk about what this means. Is this the sun setting of DEI initiatives? Is this a sunrise? What is to come in the future? So thank you so much for coming and, and jumping Man, in. I appreciate it. I typically start by letting folks know, like, I think that we have to pay homage to the individuals who've been doing this work for decades, right? Like there is a, yeah. a long history and legacy of individuals fighting for diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice and in, in the medical space and trying to make sure that underrepresented minorities in medicine continue to get opportunities that have been systematically and structurally barred from them. The other part of it is I always try to make sure that there's a clear understanding that like, when we talk about DEI stuff and health equity stuff, they're often in the same breath. And this was one of my initial kind of like pain points is that these two things have different targets, right? When we discuss DEI yeah. and even justice to that extent, a lot of times it is targeted towards the workforce. So how do we improve 
the workforce to have more people at the table, more representation, make sure that they are equally empowered. That's more DEI to me. Whereas I think health equity conversations are targeted towards the patients and outcomes. Like how do you improve outcomes and make them more equitable? How do you make them have the experiences and the opportunity for a long life, a long life and high quality life? So I share that only to kind of set the stage, but we're talking about diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives. Yeah. And I know, you know, for the medical students, residents out there, somewhere in your purpose statement to get into medical school, you're probably talking about healthcare disparities and and fixing these problems. And, And obviously, you joining the medical space contributes to diversity, equity, and inclusion because you are representing for your background and people from your race, ethnicity, or culture. But what, you know, I guess if we look at some of the things that have happened, we see there is a whole playbook. We can start with Harvard, Dr. Gay. I'm curious kind of your thoughts on starting from there or maybe go back to the affirmative action ruling the Supreme Court. You can take your pick. Where do we start? I'm working on a piece and I have to say this honestly, and it's not a plug for it, but the title of the piece is we had had two good years, man. We had two good years. It's similar to Ta-Nehisi Coates when he wrote the book, we were eight years in power. And if you think about it from Hmm. kind of a a parallels standpoint, where in those eight years that Ta-Nehisi Coates spoke about the changes and everything that needed to occur in order to have President Obama at the helm of our nation and how in the substance of his his tenure, he was able to do some things that had been you know needed in our country that didn't just benefit black people, but benefited people in general. And then to see a very harsh regimented backlash once he exited, right? Yeah. This is not the first time in history where this kind of dynamic has existed. Whenever there's some type of movement that empowers the disenfranchised, the marginalized, it gets walked back. I mean, to the point where they've even named it white lash, you know, where there's a group of people, specifically a majority culture that finds that after their guilt has somehow subsided, there's a certain clarity and sobriety to their thinking. And then policies get walked back systematically, which is, why I say that you can't start by just talking about Dr. Gay. You got to start with really like the policies that have been placed. Affirmative action has been on the verge of being walked back and eliminated for the greater portion of like two decades. So the fact that we were able to get a significant uh, amount done in a two year span, (laughs) that was incredible, but we should have been highly cautious at the outset that it was going to be walked back and that some of this stuff was going to be completely dismantled. And so my, my, my real statement around it is these institutions of higher learning that have these legacies of, again, prestige and trying to be on the, the cutting edge of a lot of social change because they want to appear attractive to students. They want to appear like they are citadels for learning and thought and pursuit of education and knowledge, right? At the end of the day, the people who pay their bills, people who donate to these institutions still come from a particular ilk, still have significant amounts of privilege that are threatened by movements that 
empower those who formerly were not given access to power. Yeah. I think that it's been very revealing, especially with the recent Claudine or Dr. Claudine Gay situation where there's been playbooks published and the mass is kind of revealed about the politics, the finances and what we're really up against. It's not just us going to the hospital every day and advocating for, uh, you know, hiring, you know, uh, a resident right. from Morehouse or, or Howard, you know, it's the, the, it's the so deck stacked, is stacked. Man. And, and the more you start to like step away from it. And I think it's hard for us first off, because when you are a black person in medicine, you're consciously living, you have this like dual experience, right? Something like what W.B. Du Bois yeah. uh, spoke about living in this duality, the idea of two Americas that Langston Hughes talk about, like you're constantly interfacing that or having like, close contact with that. But while you're living it, you have to step back and be like, whoa, how much of this is is actually going to stick? And how long are they going to be cool with having a, let's say, for example, a class of mostly black people in your residency? How long are they going to be yeah. cool with, <laughs> you know, a bunch of new hires that tend to fit all of these diversity check boxes, right? So I think that there is a certain level of, of practicality that we had to uncomfortably swallow. And then the other part about it is realizing that, you know, the diversity monies, where are they coming from? Where do these dollars come from? Mm-hmm. And how are they going to sustain those funding streams? So it was either a time thing because the money was going to run out or it was a realization thing. And so I kind of felt like, it's harder to see that when you are up close to it. And as you step, take several steps back, it becomes clearer and clearer. And then there's the optics of these different institutions because they know what it looks like when they get called out. You know, I think I I see the head that these institutions are sitting back and one by one, somebody's like, yo, this hallway is all white men. And then the charity program is like, Oh, they haven't got us yet. Let us hire somebody because they know they don't want to be next up. So then they hire somebody that looks like us and it's great for optics. They can say, we tried it. But like you mentioned, there's the time yeah. and the money behind it. When that funding runs out or that person that they hired fails at the job, oftentimes because they weren't truly for supported, sure. then they could say, we, we tried, it didn't work out, and back for to sure. status quo. No, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that the cruel joke in this is that Black women have been like disproportionately Mm. given less opportunities to show their magnificence. And they were, for these two years, really put into those roles. I mean, I would say that the greater percentage of these roles were given to black women because, one, they were qualified. That's, to me, not a question. But two, these folks who were making decisions were like, hey, I got an opportunity to Hit two birds with one stone. I get person who is a woman and black, right? And so that kind of weird strategy and weird logic to me is something that is very nuanced. And we had yeah. those opportunities to to see black women step into roles and, and smash them and kill it because that's just honestly black women go save America in my opinion. But realistically. That's who is going to be most significantly affected by all of these policies being walked back. So 
those roles that are unsupported. Yep. This is black women who are sitting in offices being the secretary as well as the commander in chief for diversity, equity, inclusion stuff. Right. These are black women who are sitting in offices being the strategist and the fundraiser. You know, what I'm saying? <laughs> like, like that's hard to do. And it just, again, it speaks to their level of being dynamic, but at the same time, Resilient. you don't ask that of <laughs> any other person or ethnicity or of men. And if you play a gender card in that regard, but that is something that we have to look at and say like, wow, like was this a okie doke from the beginning and how is the lack of support or, or creating jobs and roles without support? How is that justice? Yeah. And the nuance you you mentioned, I mean, these women have the team on the back on their back, right? And as medical students, as residents, you fortunately, you know, hopefully have somebody that looks like you in your institutional leadership, black woman, black man, whatever the case. And it's so comforting that feeling to be like, oh man, okay, they're yeah. there looking out. And as a student, I didn't I had no idea what they're dealing with every day. Like you just mentioned the many roles that they are hats. managing mm-hmm. the stressors and then they got a whole family Man. to take care of, you know? So it's not easy. And they're, and they're making, making, it, look it, making it look like it is um, a walk in the park and realizing that park is treacherous. Yeah. And, and we got to highlight Dr. Uche Blackstock. You put me on, I knew she was dropping the book, but I saw your stories yeah, and okay, the book's released. I won't see it on your, oh, no. your bookshelf yet. It's right there. Boom. <laughs> I got Here it. Here we go. Get I it in the camera. Okay. <laughs> I just finished reading that. And, and the same, I've seen her from afar and yeah, you, you know, like a duck, right? Just swimming uh, on the surface of the water. And down below, you're just kicking furiously. And what she highlights in the book, her experiences at these large academic institutions, just mind blowing. Like, oh, you dealt with that too. It's yeah, crazy. Those experiences are so common. And for her to have the courage to not only step away from academic uh, medicine, to focus on things that matter to her uh, and build uh, a, a foundation for doing quality health equity work, but then to also in a timely, in the right time, be able to make this decision and then catapult into a national figurehead and not just a talking head, but a true, like I stand by this. Like I, the proof is in the pudding type of a a person when it came to uh, understanding health disparities and how there's so many social and structural factors that play into it. Even systemic racism, like calling it out on national TV, like that is a courageous act. And then finally, like her making document of this and putting it forth in a book is really incredible. And she deserves every single accolade and and all the success that she's getting. But what I do say again is this is the lived experience of almost every black person in academic medicine. I can't speak enough to how this, like her ability to make the decision is the linchpin. And it's something that a lot of us don't have access to or the ability to make, whether it's because we're not in, we're, we can't consciously make that decision or we're stuck based upon family circumstances or we're barred to loans. You know, or, or those are the right. reasons why we stay in these positions, unsupported, consciously being microaggressed against daily, having to put up with a system that was never really built with you in mind, and then always being asked to stand in the gap without any additional compensation pay or given resources for our actions and service. 
and I got to highlight this from the book before we we move on. But one of the things that really resonated was, you know, there's so many social issues that we see and we can comment on, but that changes when you get that email from your job or you get a colleague that's like, oh, hey, you know, they saw your tweet. They're not really happy with it. And that's when the rubber hits the road. You got to make that decision. Ooh, a tough decision. Right. Do you double down? Do you yeah. scale back? So I loved that portion of I her agree. book. Legacy. I agree. I think she gave us almost a, a like a playlist of responses through her lived mm-hmm. experience. And it's also very difficult again to like think of it as a one size fits all solution, right? Uh, some places it works, some places it yeah. doesn't. And I still think that you know this happened in one of the most liberal places in America. <laughs> so it's like when you're training and you're doing this stuff in New York city compared to doing this in like Birmingham, Alabama, Jackson, Mississippi, right. Anywhere in Florida or middle ground state like (laughs) Ohio or South Carolina to some extent or battleground state rather in South Carolina, like these actions are different. So we've talked kind of about clawing your way to getting a seat at the table. And for some of so many of us, right, first generation in medicine, we're like, oh, I made it. I'm an assistant professor at this institution, <laughs> which for it's the mountain. Know, shout out to you. That is an incredible accomplishment. But then you're like, okay, now there's these committees I got to join. And now you're on a committee. And now there's like, oh, they need some DEI stuff. So now you're on the D, you're the DEI person. And I wonder your thoughts, you know, as we attain these leadership roles, the staying power of these different roles, what should institutions do to legitimize these positions and ensure that they stick around and are beneficial? I I have to first acknowledge the fact that it is risky, right? And I acknowledge the risk that a lot of these institutions took on the front end in creating the roles, right? You're talking about a role that doesn't have any evidence in terms of its necessity, like like we are in academic medicine, so it's like, all right, what does the letter the literature say? Well, there is no literature that talks about what happens when you have a chief diversity and inclusion officer, when you have uh, a director of diversity, or whatever the the name of the title was. Right? There was no literature for it, uh, or rather, there was not an abundance of literature for it. Then there's the thought of yeah. like, how do I fund these roles? So. It's got to come from somebody's budget. And a lot of times it was either a, they're searching whatever donor pools they have. Cause during that time frame, you know, guilt was real and people were like in masses donating like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to institutions. And so they were like, well, we have this money or we are applying for this grant and we got this grant. How do we make best use of it? And it's to funnel it towards these roles. Yeah. But again, donations are one-time offerings. Grants are often one time with a back end ask, like what happened because of yeah. this role created or what did you do with my money? Like you have to report back. And so now it's about metrics and how are we evaluating the, the effect of this role? So when I think about what institutions could have done, the first thing is, you know, you can't under fund and under support at the same time. They just don't work. If you're going to fund adequately fund and offer support. The second thing is realizing that, you know, 
Rome wasn't built in a day. You can't walk in a room and turn on a light switch and all of a sudden it's like, oh, everything's better. No, realistically, right. this was something that was going to take 10 years, not two years. And 10 might even be aggressive. But in terms of like creating the infrastructure for this, to come up with programs, to pilot and vet the programs that work, then scale those programs and then see if there's a true effect magnitude like that. Something that you can't do on a 36 month window saying like that's just not the most aggressive persons in the world. Like you would have to have a NASA level team to do that. You know what I'm saying? Like you would have to be an Apollo mission to do that and you still might fail. So I think that's a reality is that those things could have been accommodated up front by, by chief medical officers, chief executive officers, or anyone, deans, whoever of these schools or of these hospitals, they could have had that type of foresight. If the true honest choice was to make this investment your investments do not flip that quick. If I put money in the stock market tomorrow, unless I put it on NVIDIA, but yeah. I was just saying, but I'm saying like, <laughs> if I put money in the stock market tomorrow, I can't expect that in a year I'm going to have like some crazy uh, returns. No, it's like it has to sit for a while. And, and so that was one of the biggest missteps. And then the other thing I think they would have to do to make this thrive is realize that there's still culture shift that has to occur, right? And that culture shift is hard. You can have all of the funding, all of the money in the world, but if your institution is still kind of like averse to seeing a woman in charge or averse to seeing a black person lead things from the front and not be behind anybody or used to seeing somebody who comes from a LGBTQ identity speaking outwardly and expecting everybody to change the way that they address folks based upon pronoun usage, like that's a culture shift, man. <laughs> right. I thought that one. Oh, so I'm just saying it is, it's hard for everybody to comply. And the way that, it, what do you do? How do you penalize somebody for not complying? How do you yeah. change behavior? Do you just fire everybody? Like, so like these are more nuanced questions that I think on the front end, had they been addressed and had they really been focusing on like somebody who only works on culture shift, someone who only works on questions from other people who are in the work environment and how they're going to not coalesce, but actually embrace these changes. And then like that would have been an entire different yeah. thing. That was like an industrial psychology thing that they could have actually swung at the same time as rolling out this role. Instead, what you ended up having was the chief diversity inclusion officers serving as that too. So it, right. it is very, it's very hard on the person who's in that role. And I just think that there were some opportunities to meet that on the front end. Yeah. And from an institutional perspective, it's, Hey, we got this black person. You want to be the DEI chair? And it's like, you know, they may or may not know the ins and outs. Like you just eloquently stated, how do you build a DEI program? You need to consult somebody that knows what they're doing and, you know, well-intentioned. It's a promotion. If you're at that institution, you're well-intentioned, you want to help, but you're, you may have been, you know, outgunned from the beginning from taking that role. Cause a lot of these positions popped up. You said two good years. There was a DEI chief positions being created across the country. And in the last, you know, six months to a yeah. year, I've personally noticed some of those being scaled. I don't know all the intricacies, all the details, but I've seen some folks move for roles and then, 
move, you know, a couple years. Yeah, I saw, I mean, there was an entire shift towards it. And that's kind of why Adam's podcast episode is going to be so, so, so dope because he talks about people who just saw the wave and there's like, they're surfers and they've been paddling mm-hmm. and they see the wave coming and it's like, ah, get on this one. Right. But it was a lot of reasons to get on. Right. One, it's most of the time it was a vertical move. Right. Because you're getting from whatever role you were to actual title that allows you to leverage it in other type of job opportunities. Yeah. There, it came with some resources. So you got a bag of some sort. Right. It came with the ability to truly affect change. Right. So you might have been doing something at one scale and now you're able to do that at a larger scale as long as you were able to comply and demonstrate results. And then I think the other major thing that we don't talk about that the role did was it set what I would consider to be a precedent for if you are a person of color and you wanted to do work in an institution, it's like, hey, this is a potential pathway Mm now, right? Like this is how you can get your community work funded. This is how you can create a, a, a very broad catching program that gets more people who look like you in the building. This is what you can use to attract other students and residents. And so it's like this clear pathway now. And that's sad, right? Yeah. It's sad because we honestly should be able to do anything. But this was one thing that was more natural to a lot of applicants who come from URM backgrounds. And, and then I would be remiss not to say this. I don't think that it was like poorly intentioned. I don't think that the creation right. of these roles and when people were assuming these roles, their immediate thought was like, let me extort this institution. Let me get everything I can. <laughs> right, right. You know, like people really did like buy into the thought and it was hard not to, right? You know, this would take you back. It's 2020, 2021, where like people mm-hmm. are sitting in this like, this, standing water of like what's happening in the world We're we're seeing, you know, black lives matter movement on full display. We're also masked up and like having social distancing. And so all of this is making you confront a lot of personal questions and things around identity and what matters to you most. Yeah. Seeing black and brown folks disproportionately, disproportionately like, I want to do something. I need to stop this. And so I think that the intentions were there where it kind of started being weird is as it became more lucrative. So now you start to see multiple companies mm-hmm. and organizations create roles. So Google creates a role. Facebook creates a role. All right. Well, okay. All right. Now. So, so you're looking and you're watching industries and you're like, all right. So the tech industry is creating these roles. People are now uh, glowing up. You're looking across and you see folks glowing up. Meaning academically, mm-hmm. professionally, mm-hmm. financially, the glow up was happening around you. <laughs> and so how could you be, how could you ignore that potential? Right. I, I don't blame anybody for being a part of that and, and, and being transparent. Like the opportunities that I was given are a function of people being conscious of this. The one thing that I do tell folks is yeah. I was doing it when it wasn't popular. <laughs> was working in this capacity before it was popular. Suffice it to say, those of us who had been doing work in diversity since forever, for as long as we can remember, uh, it was our comeuppance. It was the opportunity for us to finally reap what we had sowed 
back in the 2000, early 2000, mid uh, 2010s, like we were finally given the opportunity to make good on some of those personal, those sweat equity and investments that never were appropriately seen. Yeah. I want to close out by talking about what's to come. But before we get to that, we have to talk about the American Academy of Dermatology because I think this yes, sir. foreshadows what can happen and happen quickly. And this affects, you know, all of us in healthcare, different specialties, what whatever the case. So over the last month, the American Academy of Dermatology, you know, these large governing bodies have different institution uh, or policies and endeavors, and one of which was kind of a DEI outreach program and funding sources where they're training up uh, mentees and trying to increase diversity in the field of dermatology. So there was a resolution that was drafted to sunset these DEI initiatives. You can see the this paper online. You can read, you can see all the names, all the uh, prominent physicians that have signed their name to this. And the outrageous claims that are not evidence-based just kind of spitball on, on on how DEI efforts, quote unquote, have had unintended consequences and, and worsened healthcare disparities and some pretty significant allegations. I, I do have to center Dr. Robinson and Dr. Spidin- can always say her name right. Apologies, Dr. Yeah. Spadinsky, two black women, like we just talked about. They got the team on their back. Black women dermatologists that have been going ham on social media, just keeping myself abreast as well as everybody else about what is happening. And for me, it's foreboding because it's going to happen in yeah, any man. specialty. I mean, not even can happen. It is happening. I really, mm. <clears throat> I think that this is the reason why this is such a big deal is because it creates a precedent, right? It creates a precedent across yeah. academic medicine. If you see a specialty that is, in my opinion, and if I had to ask in a, all of the different specialties, who are the most combative, argumentative, the ones who would be willing to strongly advocate for things, I would not say dermatology. And that's no disrespect yeah. to dermatologists. Right, it's right, just the fact that right. there's a lifestyle uh, benefit to being a dermatologist. And a lot of times it's easy to just go with the grain. But one, the disparities in dermatology are very real and evident. And so there's like a clear mm. anchor and reason why these DEI initiatives that f- basically push the health equity issue forward are there. The second part is realizing that, as I said, once one organization accepts this type of a resolution, you've now created a blueprint on how other organizations can adopt the yep. same resolution. It's the language is there, the the strategy is there, and even that you can learn as a case study how to combat the questions and the negative uh, optics mm-hmm. of it from this particular one. And because it's dermatology, it's at a smaller level, right? It's, it's such a niche yeah. group of people. So that's why we should be paying attention to it and how it plays out. Now, there are a couple of things that I do got to say about it. And one is, there is a financial element to this that is being underplayed and downstated. I think that, or understated and downplayed. And I think that's what we need to be more focusing on is like, how are these other companies that have given money to the organization going to be affected by this? And the truth of the matter is maybe this is protective and that's why they're pushing it so much. Maybe the reason why these organizations are pushing it, they're using 
the the veil, the Trojan horse approach of, hey, this is potentially anti-Semitic, it's potentially going to affect other people negatively, it's increased health disparities, not reduced them. They're using that as the Trojan horse when the real thing is nationally, lawsuits are actively open against companies that have created diversity and equity and inclusion initiatives and are disproportionately yeah. funding people. And so now because of the absolution of affirmative action, there is legal precedent to sue these companies and sue these entities for discrimination, right? And so maybe there's a desire to separate themselves from potential legal action in dissolving these types of things. So I just encourage people to track the dollars, follow the money, because that ends up being what helps sway people. Now, imagine if that organization ends up being roped into a lawsuit or they lose significant money because somebody they partner with is going through some type of a legal battle related to diversity dollars. Yeah. It's food for thought. Yeah. And I thought about that. Shout out to the five or six dermatologists that are out there. I mean, I don't think that they're fighting a lost battle at all. I think that I would pivot and I would pivot not necessarily towards all belonging or anything like that, like how most places are pivoting now. I would just pivot in the sense of saying like, these dollars mean what? Like how is the loss of these dollars worth more than the loss of literally hundreds of doctors of color? Like that, you're putting someone to, you're forcing someone to make a decision now. And as I tell people all the time, outcomes are not political. You don't argue outcomes. You can argue feelings. You can argue whether or not the optics of this are good or bad, but you can't argue outcomes in medicine. Like death is death. Life is life. And so if you're saying that something can potentially cause more people to die, can cause more harm, how does that fall in alignment with the oath that you took as a physician? So yeah. that's how I would frame it. I wouldn't frame it based upon someone's morality around whether or not they should support having more people of color or more URM background folks in medicine. I would just say, do you want to see more people negatively impacted? Yes or no? That's good. That's good. And there's always talk about institutions that are built for us versus those that are not. We have the National Medical Association, which kind of took on the lion's share of advocating for positions or for patients of color. But what are your thoughts? I mean, we can't just pull out of our different governing organizations. Should we lean in and try to fight this knowing we're only like three or 4% depend on allies for support? It's a tough question. And I say that as a sense of like, we can't overnight create numbers. You know what I mean? Like we're not going to be... yeah. you can't recruit enough doctors, get them through enough of the processes to change the number from 5% to 10%. That is just a difficult thing to do. And it doesn't happen overnight. The same thing is like these buildings that were created that don't have us in it. We can't just like all of a sudden create and construct a new building with all of us in it and named after someone from a URM background. It does require a lot of coming across the aisle, so to speak. And again, I challenge folks to think about what those common threads are between us and folks who are on the other side of the aisle. Like that's literally the whole premise behind getting something passed in Congress. It's what are our common values? What are our common, the overlapping things, right? And so stuff like talking about children, clear overlap. 
And so why not focus on things that are affecting vulnerable populations and think about vulnerable populations, not in terms of racial or ethnic groups, but in terms of ages, like pregnant women, kids, older people. If you're able to highlight stories and emphasize stories that also demonstrate your point within those age groups, now you have common threats because most people know somebody who falls in one of those three categories. The other thing is, once you get an ally, what do you do to maintain those relationships? Is it a thanks for your vote and now I'll let you know more? Or are you actually engaging them? Are you bringing them along to see <laughs> right. the evidence of the decision that they made? And that's where we fall short as hmm. in terms of, you know, people who come from a URM uh, background or folks who work in diversity, equity, inclusion or health equity work is we're not consciously giving them this. We're not taking them through that experience. You know, one of my favorite parts of watching Black Panther was when they took your boy to Wakanda. They took him to Wakanda. He had Mm -hmm. to see it. Mm -hmm. He had to actually experience it. Now, no matter what happened on the back end, my point is, if they're not able to see what their decisions have led to and how it's impacted people, why would they continue to make that decision? And so we don't do a good job of that. And I think that's like a true criticism of our strategy. And we got to change that. And the only small piece I'll add is stay away from the trolls. Man, you cannot listen to them. Um, <laughs> Internet <laughs> trolls will have you doubting yeah. yourself. And you could be mm-hmm. extremely Fighting. correct. Like factually correct. Yeah. <laughs> and they'll still make me like, nah. You'll be like, all right, dude. Just block facts. button. As we wrap up, Dr. Brown, where do we go from here? What is the future of DEI? We had two good years, man. It was a really good run. Um, and I am happy to see the amount of progress that we were able to make in a short time span with the resources we were given, yeah. right? There's anything to learn from it. It is, you give us an inch, we're going to take a foot. We're going to take a mile. And that to forward thinking, innovative people is exciting, right? So my first thing is yeah. identify those innovators, Find the people, the companies, the groups that want to innovate and take that same energy of going from low resource to extrapolating it to make more resources and go there. Second thing is diversity, equity, inclusion is just continuing to evolve. It's like a Rubik's Cube. Uh, You just keep spinning it. Now, new term is going to be belonging. And so you can still do great DEI work under another title. And I hate the fact that it has to be the option, but it's a preservation option. So for those who are getting rolled into offices of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging or wellness offices, do good work. The work will speak for itself. You can still do those things. You can still bend their funding and be Robin Hood to make sure that the people who need to be impacted are impacted as well. And then the last part is this, realizing, I've said it before, outcomes aren't negotiable. You have to change your focus or either amplify the focus, like really have a conversation with yourself and say, what was I trying to accomplish? Now, for me, it was never about just DEI work. It was always a health equity issue. And one of the routes to make health equity was diversity, equity, inclusion. You get more people who look like the patients, the patients have greater adherence. There's concordant studies to back all of this information up. 
And that was the reason why I focused on that. Now, outcomes are not political. They're not negotiable. If you can figure out how to frame your career and frame the work that you do around outcomes, now you put people in a different position because they have to answer a question that is mm-hmm. not just a moral imperative. It's literally about you are, you have agreed and signed on to do this. And now you're saying that this doesn't matter. So I think that it's easy to hit that Uno reverse card on them with this. Does not mean start diving into health equity at the same race as DEI and parachuting on it. Because on this end, there are real consequences, right? The consequences of failed DEI programs was, all right, we didn't have any more doctors who were more representative, or we have people leaving this space into another space. The consequences of failed health Mm -hmm. equity is death. Yeah. So understand the stakes. That was good. Man, what are you trying to accomplish? That, That is awesome. I'm excited for this. This piece you're writing, Two Good Years. We'll definitely share that. If I see somebody pop up, if Uche, you pop up with a We Had Two Good Years article, I'm coming. (laughs) (laughs) If anybody comes out with this article before mine is finished, I promise you it's going to be hell to raise. Dr. Tala Brown, always appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your unique, very well-researched perspective. I appreciate it. It is an honor to be here. And I, I just love what you're doing, man. Keep doing it. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to the Black Doctors Podcast. We're here because representation matters. Boom.